0: Our final scripture lesson this morning comes from James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, Then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Would you pray with me? Author of life, we give thanks to you for your word as we reflect on what is written, let your spirit be upon us and transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. This past Tuesday morning, I was gathered with one of my clergy groups at Manchester United Methodist Church. That particular morning, the group was just me, Dylan Burns, who's the pastor at Manchester, and Pete Harris, who's the pastor at Sharon. Pete was also my mentor through the candidacy process for ordination. In our group, he's the voice of experience, the one that we ask questions to. Last Tuesday, though, he had a question for me and Dylan. He wanted to know what that day meant to us. What did the anniversary of the most deadly terrorist attack on American soil mean for us as people who were children when it happened? Part of the reason that Pete asked is because he has children about our age. He shared with us that when his daughter graduated high school, she joined the armed forces. Among the reason that she did so were the lingering consequences of that day. And I found out that Dylan is several years younger than me, so he didn't really understand what was happening at the time. And as a result, the day doesn't really mean a whole lot to him. But I was in seventh grade when the attack happened, just old enough to have any sort of understanding about what was going on. So I shared with Pete and Dylan that in a large part, that day is why I am a pacifist. I was just old enough to understand the horror of the attack on the Trade Center. My parents tried to keep me from seeing the worst of it, but I remember seeing the bodies of people jumping out of a skyscraper. I remember the images like something out of a sci-fi movie of walls of dust rushing down the concrete canyons of Manhattan. And I remember the shock and the grief that gripped the world in response to such massive loss of life. But I remember what came after that as well. I remember just over a year later when I was in eighth grade, learning that someone who recently graduated from our high school had been killed in Iraq. I remember my first halftime performance in our high school marching band was for a ceremony to honor that young man, Juan Garza. I remember the grief that once again gripped our community, and I remember thinking that it made no sense for us to respond to the pain of death with more death. And as the war in Iraq dragged on, I remember hearing about the shameful taking of civilian life, of incidents like the Nasur Square Massacre, when private contractors for Blackwater opened fire unprovoked on a crowd of civilians. What good was it doing to create more grieving families? How was this healing the wounds caused on September 11th, 2001? In my lifetime, I've seen the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. come to fruition. Dr. King said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate, Violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. After setting forth this truth, Dr. King asked the question Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies, or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. The question that Dr. King asks is one that still fundamentally strikes at the heart of our world today. How can we hope for life to come from death? How can we hope for love to come from hate? On Tuesday, as the day progressed, I saw a post on social media that kept popping up again and again. Other people were remembering what happened after the attacks. But the memory of this post and my memories were not quite the same. This post said, I miss 9-12. I would never want another 9-11, but I miss the America of 9-12. Stores ran out of flags to sell because they were being flown everywhere. People were Americans before they were upper or lower class, Jewish or Christian, Republican or Democrat. We hugged people without caring if they ate Chick-fil-A or wore Nikes. On 9-12, what mattered more was what united us than what divided us. In some sense, there is truth to this post. I do remember people coming together. Some of it was coming together in grief as fire departments, police stations, and volunteers across the country sent aid to the rescue efforts in New York, or as churches, synagogues, mosques, and other houses of worship came together for prayer vigils and memorial services. But there was a darkness to the unity that I remember as well. As the Post says, people were American first. We were united against the world. And if you happen to be Muslim or to look like people think you look like if you're Muslim, then unfortunately that casts suspicion on whether or not you count it as an American. I remember people united in hatred. I remember the song Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue by Toby Keith. I remember hearing the song shared in class by one of my classmates and I remember hearing the lyrics you'll be sorry that you messed with the US of A cuz we'll put a boot in your ass it's the American way that is the dangerous part of unity that I remember after the attacks anger hatred and violence now 17 years later, we find ourselves in a world where anger, hatred, and violence continue to serve as the forces around which people unite. In our politics, in our public squares, in our church life, the easiest path to success seems to be to stoke the fires of hatred. Which finally brings us back to this morning's scripture reading. Our reading today is, on the surface, an instruction to teachers. But the essence of today's message is directed to anyone who has influence on other people. Today's message is for anyone who has children or younger family members who look to them as role models. Today's message is for anyone who has friends who listen to what they have to say. Today's message is a message for anyone whose words have an effect on the people around them. Today's message, then, is a message for all of us. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, exclaims James. And do we need any more proof of how true this is than the wildfires that scourge the western United States every year? Fires that begin when a tire blows and the sparks of the rim on the road kindle a mighty blaze. Fires that begin when a stray cigarette butt is tossed carelessly aside to ignite a consuming fire. The tongue is a fire, and just as a single spark consumes a countryside, so too does a wicked tongue consume a population but the vivid imagery does not stop there. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a restless evil full of poison. The tongue is a spring from which either good, clean water or brackish water may flow. The tongue is a plant which can grow figs or olives or grapes, but not all three. Now, admittedly, the metaphor might break down with that last one because I can't figure out which of those fruits is good and which one is evil. But the point remains that when we speak with hatred on our tongue, it pollutes any of the good speech that might also come out of our mouths. When we speak, we are sowing something in the world. When we speak evil, we sow hatred, division, fear. When we speak goodness, we sow peace and harmony. But what good does it do for us to plant the seeds of peace alongside the seeds of evil? When it comes time for the harvest, we will find that the fruits of peace have been choked out by the weeds of evil. So here is the challenge that James presents to us. We must be disciplined. We must guard our tongues to prevent evil coming forth. As part of the ordination process, those of us who were being commissioned were asked to provide a statement about our passion for ministry. My personal statement was something along the lines of participating in the coming of the kingdom by practicing nonviolence as a spiritual discipline. During annual conference, this video was played and I was approached afterwards by several clergy members who were excited about what I had said. I imagine that when they heard the words nonviolence, they pictured the direct actions that have fueled justice movements around the world. Sit-ins, protests, die-ins, marches. These are the images of nonviolence that capture the imagination. But nonviolence as a spiritual discipline starts well before any of those things happen. Nonviolence starts here in the lessons of James, It starts with learning how to speak without wounding, with disciplining your spirit and your mind, to return love when confronted with hatred, to return goodness when met with evil. Let me be clear, I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Even James admits that we make mistakes. There are times that I get frustrated and respond with sarcastic, flippant answers times when I get angry and say things that I wish I hadn't. But these moments only serve to remind me of the work that I have to do. Because peace starts with each and every one of us. We all have the option to plant seeds of peace. We all are responsible for the harvest that comes, whether good or ill. So please, be sure to plant the right seeds. Amen.